break 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 You're listening to Breakthrough News, and this is The Punch-Out. We're following the news all day so you don't have to, giving you everything you need to know about what's in the headlines and what should be. And yes, we are back here on The Punch-Out, 4th of April, 2022. Very happy to be back with you here on the show. Plenty for you here on the show, as we always do. We're going to be talking about the possibility of a cap on insulin prices being passed by the Congress here in the United States. We're also going to be talking about the state of hardships for many working families here in the U.S. as well. But before we get to either of those two very important stories, we want to start with what recent polling shows us about how Russians feel about the ongoing conflict in Ukraine. In mainstream media, Russia is often reduced purely to the personage of Vladimir Putin. No one rules in a vacuum, however, and the opinions of Russians as to the Russian invasion and war in Ukraine will certainly play a major role not only in the policy choices made by the Russian government, but as it regards how those choices will be influenced by outside activity like sanctions and further military escalation by NATO forces. Recent polling does provide some window into determining how the Russian public feels about what's going on. The Levada Center, one of the Russian polling agencies that is most respected in the West, for whatever that counts for, released results last week from polling done towards the end of March. They did not poll on the war directly, but there were some indicative signs. President Putin's approval rating rose from 71% in their last pre-war poll to 83%, The percentage of people who felt the country is moving in the right direction stood at 69% in the last weeks of March, as compared to 52% in February. The percentage of those saying that they, quote-unquote, trusted President Putin went from 34% to 44%. Approval ratings for Russia's parliament, the Duma, rose from 49% at the end of February to 59% at the end of March. Overall, then, the Levada poll results suggest that the invasion caused about a 10 to 15 percent improvement in the standing of the main political actors in the country in the eyes of the public. That this represents a majority view seems to be confirmed, or at least as confirmed as it can be, when you look at some other available data points. In early March, the Washington Post published the results of an independent poll that reflected that 58 percent of Russians supported what Moscow calls a special military operation and 23 percent opposed it. 46% said that they quote-unquote firmly supported the action, 13% said they somewhat supported the action, 6% were on the fence, and 13% said they had no opinion or declined to answer. Just before the war, CNN had a poll done in Russia that found 50% of those polled thought it would be right for quote, Moscow to use military force to prevent Kiev from joining NATO, end quote. Two state-run pollsters took polls shortly after the war began, finding 68% and 65% of Russians respectively supported the war, and 22% and 23% respectively were opposed. The obvious conclusion to draw from this, then, is that a clear majority support the Russian efforts in Ukraine, and a significant plurality support it strongly. 
Notably, while in the minority, the anti-war elements in Russia continue to be active. In fact, just this weekend, 200 were arrested protesting the war in 17 cities across Russia. The views of those in Russia are critical as it concerns what the response is from other nations, particularly the United States and its NATO allies. If significant majorities support the war or at least put the blame for it on the West, the impact of a massive ramping up of sanctions and pouring in huge amount of military equipment is likely to backfire. In fact, as we've seen from the effect of massive sanctions on countries like Cuba, Venezuela, and Iran, when the population feels that their country is more or less in the right, it only strengthens their resolve to resist even amidst many hardships. It makes it more likely that Russia will deepen the war rather than disengage, and far more likely that the conflict ends in some sort of Cold War-esque stalemate with increased militarism in Europe and a greater likelihood of nuclear conflict in the future. And this is important because it goes, in essence, in the opposite direction of where most polling says the U.S. public would like for U.S. policy to go. If we summarize a number of recent polls, you can see that in the U.S., the public overwhelmingly feels the Biden administration is doing enough or should do more to aid Ukraine. However, clear majorities also do not want the U.S. to get into any sort of direct conflict or war with Russia. And large numbers of Americans are becoming increasingly concerned about the economic impact of the war on their personal finances. In other words, people in the U.S. don't want war, fear the economic consequences of a war, but would like to see a solution that seems at least reasonably fair to Ukraine. The paradox is the policies of Biden that a majority say they support go in the other direction, as we previously mentioned. Increasing sanctions, that is, punishing ordinary Russians, is only likely to strengthen their resolve to keep fighting, as it will seem like a totally unfair form of collective punishment for something they think is basically right and fair from their perspective. Pouring in more weapons to, quote, help Ukraine win only creates public perception in Russia that there is no diplomatic off-ramp, again, likely to deepen the war as more people feel the only way out is basically just to totally defeat the Ukrainian military in the field. When you look at the statements of the Ukrainian government at the negotiating table, it's clear that they accept some of the key final status issues, including that Ukraine can't join NATO, and also that there has to be some sort of neutral status for Ukraine. So the easiest way for the U.S. to push forward a peace process is to de-escalate, to make demonstrative statements not just about Ukraine joining NATO, but future intentions for Europe, moving away from the idea of Europe as an anti-Russia trench and towards the idea of collective security, a point recently raised by France, as key to long-term resolution of this conflict and further conflicts in Eastern Europe. So while you won't hear much about the average Russian in the U.S. media, what they think is important to how the conflict is resolved, since their reactions to NATO escalation will determine the broader contours of how the Russian government chooses to conduct itself. The Census Bureau has released the reports of its most recent household pulse survey from early March. That reflects once again tens of millions of people in the U.S. are in serious economic distress. The most recent survey taken in the first two weeks of March found that 31.8 million people found it, quote, very difficult to meet their normal household expenses in the seven days prior to answering the survey. 45.3 million found it somewhat difficult and 60 million found it a little difficult. In other words, 137 million people in the United States had difficulty paying their normal household expenses in early March. It's worth reflecting on how closely that number tracks with the findings of the Poor People's Campaign that there are 140 million poor people in the United States. Of those 137 million people struggling to pay their normal household expenses, 58.4 million are in households with children. 4.8 million people responded to the Household Pulse survey that in the seven days before they took the survey, they, quote, often did not have enough to eat. Another 16.9 million, quote, sometimes did not have enough to eat. 
So in early March, at least 21.7 million people went hungry at some point in an average week. 10.6 million were in households where children were present. 5.5 million were not at all confident in early March, this is what they told the Household Pulse survey, that they would be able to make rent in April. 9.5 million were slightly confident, and 12.7 million were moderately confident. So overall, 27.7 million people were not 100% sure they could make rent last Friday. 12.9 million of those are living in households with children. As you can see, the level of hardship among working and poor people in the United States is significant. But despite that, the government is planning to spend over 50% of its budget this year on the military, which gives you a sense of what the priority is for the White House and Congress. Give you a hint. It's not you and I. While we are talking about costs to working and poor people for critical needs, a key battle is shaping up in Congress over the price of insulin. Late last week, the House of Representatives passed a bill capping the price of copays for insulin at $35, fulfilling a promise made by President Biden in his State of the Union address. The action has now moved to the Senate, where there are multiple competing proposals for insulin price decreases. Just over 30 million people in the U.S. live with diabetes, and the cost of treating it are notably astronomical. In some cases, even with insurance, people can pay $600 for a 40-day supply of insulin that they need to survive, or between about five dollars to $6,000 a year, which for many ultimately means they are forced to ration insulin at the risk to their own health and their own lives. And that has for years made the cost of insulin a major proxy for the struggle to lower prescription drug prices more broadly, as for most people at least, it seems obscene that a life-saving drug could be priced in such a way to put it out of reach for many who need it. However, how to address the issue makes a big difference. The House bill, which is a companion to a bill introduced in the Senate by Senator Warnock of Georgia, simply created a copay cap. Now, this will keep costs down specifically for insulin in terms of what you pay out of pocket if you have insurance, but it raises serious questions about the overall cost of insurance and, of course, does not affect those who do not, in fact, have insurance. The main issue here is that the copay cap doesn't affect the list price, which is in the hundreds of dollars, which means almost certainly insurance companies will just increase the overall cost of what you pay for insurance to cover the difference of whatever they might have lost by having to take on more of the cost of very highly priced insulin. And this hits on a key issue as it concerns prescription drug prices, and one that often comes up when it concerns bills regarding prescription drug prices is who is really responsible for the super high prices and thus who should take the biggest burden in reducing the cost. In reality, it's basically everyone involved in the healthcare system. It's really a combination of drug makers, pharmacy benefit managers, and insurance companies. But in the debate over drug prices, each industry always tries to pass it off on the other one. Now, pharmacy benefit managers might be part of the healthcare industry you've never heard of, but they're huge companies who make massive profits. Basically, the role they play is they manage the prescription drug plans of the insurance companies, which, among other things, gives them tremendous power because they determine which drugs are covered by the various insurance plans and for how much. They negotiate deals with drug companies to get paid huge sums for including their drugs in the various plans. The way it all starts is with big pharma charging prices that are far in excess of actual cost. Then come the pharmacy benefit managers. What they do is they make the drug companies compete to offer them the best possible deals to cover their drugs. Those deals are known as rebates. And the way it works is the drug companies have super high prices. Then they say to the pharmacy benefit managers, well, if you cover our drug, we'll give you a rebate 
i.e. a discount. And then the pharmacy benefit managers pocket the rebates, and that's how they make huge profits. And of course, then come the insurance companies who can use the high cost of drugs to charge you more money overall for your insurance. So from start to finish, it's price gouging. Nonetheless, in the Senate, momentum on insulin price caps seemed to be trending towards a bill put together primarily by Senator Collins, a Republican of Maine, that targets the pharmacy benefit managers as opposed to the insurance companies who are targeted by the copay cap. Collins' bill would essentially prevent benefit managers from taking rebates on insulin. So ultimately, this would end the competition for higher prices and mean that pharmacy benefit managers would most likely, at least it's the way it's supposed to work, choose the lowest cost insulin, which makes it more valuable to insurers and thus makes them more likely to work with certain pharmacy benefit managers. So it more or less creates a new incentive structure around insulin. The Collins bill seems more likely to bring down overall costs, but it also stipulates the goal is to bring down costs to 2006 levels when it was still pretty high. And of course, it then will allow the companies to increase prices with the rate of medical inflation. So while estimates are that it could cut the price 75%, it will start to rise again almost immediately over time. And even that 75% cut doesn't really mean insulin is truly affordable, just that it's cheaper than it is now. It's unclear what will happen with either bill. In the history of bills designed to lower the cost of prescription drugs, they either almost always fail or they end up being passed in a way that's so watered down, they ultimately do nothing. So at the end of the day, both bills really have the same issue. They try to maintain the for-profit healthcare market more or less as is when that market is actually built to be bloated and inefficient and favor profit over saving lives. So until that contradiction is resolved, it seems likely the cost of prescription drugs and all other forms of healthcare will remain far too high. That's the punch out for today. We're with you Monday through Friday, 5 p.m. here in New York East Coast Standard Time, 2 p.m. in Los Angeles Pacific Standard Time, and 9 p.m. GMT. And of course, you can support everything we do here at Breakthrough News at patreon.com slash breakthrough news. It's your patronage that keeps all of our offerings here at Breakthrough News moving forward. And of course, you can check us out across all your social media platforms, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, at BT Newsroom. 